and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. At the Path 11 Podcast, we are here trying to deliver leading-edge research on consciousness, healing, and metaphysics. And just like you, we are trying to answer the big questions about life. Who are we? Why are we here? And what is our purpose? We hope by listening to our podcast, it will make each day you live on Earth a little easier to understand. And now for today's podcast. All right, so we have a great guest for everybody today. I am really excited to speak to Linda Graham, and she has recently come out with a book called Resilience. She is an experienced psychotherapist who integrates modern neuroscience, mindfulness practices, and relational psychology in her international trainings on resilience and well-being. Like I said earlier, she is the author of the book Resilience and also Bouncing Back. She is also the winner of a 2013 Books for a Better Life Award. Linda, welcome to the Pathway podcast. Thank you, April. Good to be with you. Yes. And um, as a mental health therapist in New York, I have done a lot of trainings on resilience when I had a little bit of a, um, I had a contract position working with the Air Force for about two years. And that's when we were doing a lot of suicide prevention. And the buzzword was resilience, resilience, resilience. And, um, you know, I think it's an important topic to talk about because all of us as human beings, um, will probably bump up against something, some challenge in life that is going to require this fancy word resilience to come into play. And if we don't have it, it can really make our life a muck. So I'm so glad that you are here today to talk about it and to talk about your book. I've read through it. There are some excellent exercises in here. There's some great meditations I might even use for my Meditation Monday classes. Um, so this is a really great resource and, and tool. But um, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your background and uh, specifically, too, about the neuroscience, because I find that very fascinating when it comes to mindfulness and how our brain has the ability to really change with some of these practices that you write about in your book. So tell me how, how your story began. <laughs> so I actually got interested in resilience because I am a psychotherapist. Many of my clients are coming in for help in finding their center, finding their balance again after something has kind of thrown them for a loop. And so a lot of the work that I do with my psychotherapy clients is around resilience. Um, but I'm learning from them that it's important to, to sort of pre-wire our brains to be resilient, not just coping with something after it has happened, but strengthening those capacities to cope as we go along. We actually learn how to be resilient by being resilient and learning that we can be. So that's where the neuroplasticity of the brain comes in because that's the exciting discovery of modern neuroscience, that the brain can change its patterns of response lifelong. So any experience will cause neurons in the brain to fire. You repeat the experience, you're repeating the neural firing. When you repeat the experience enough, you've actually created new neural circuitry or a new neural pathway. So a lot of the exercises in the book Resilience are to help people create the pathways in their brains that will help them be more resilient from the get-go or in the moment as it's needed. So I offer tools for new conditioning, new experiences that will create new pathways, whether that's more focused attention or better listening skills or um, hand on the heart to calm down our nervous system, you know, tools that create new pathways in the brain, but also teaching 
reconditioning, which is juxtaposing something negative, something difficult, with something positive. And when those two are juxtaposed and held in awareness at the same time, the neurons constellating those memories will fall apart and rewire. So that's the basis of trauma therapy. And when we learn how to rewire old patterns that may have served a protective function at one time, but are no longer so helpful, then we can actually create new, more flexible, more adaptive patterns going forward. And then there's also um, what I call deconditioning. So we know when we focus the attention of the brain, and if you're teaching mindfulness, you know this very well, when we focus the attention of the brain, we're actually using the prefrontal cortex, the, the structure of executive functioning in the brain, to focus that attention. And we do that to create new conditioning and to recondition the old patterns. But it's also possible when we're not focusing attention, that the brain gets to go into its default mode network, it gets to go into its mental play space. Now, we experience that when we go into a daydream or reverie. We experience that when we go into worry and rumination, and the brain is just kind of chewing on things over and over again. But this is also the realm that we can use for guided meditation, guided visualization, guided imagination exercises. And when the brain plays on its own and it connects the dots on its own and it makes new links and associations on its own that's where we can come up with our own intuitive wisdom and we use that to create a wise guide or a safe place or a circle of support that is also part of our resilience so i'm finding my clients enjoy learning how the brain works because it gives them a sense of competence and a sense of mastery and then they can apply that to whatever situation they're facing in their lives where they have to be able to bounce back. Yeah, I would agree with that. It almost feels like once you have a better understanding of the brain, then it almost feels like you can have a better relationship with the brain that is causing you to feel so many emotions. And I feel like, you know, maybe... I don't know, 10 years ago, before there was a lot of this really being out there in print and a lot of people talking about the neuroplasticity of the brain, that it was feeling very much of like, I would say some of my clients would say, um, I'm just having all these uncontrollable emotional responses. You know, it just seemed like it was the emotions taking over as opposed to really understanding how we can work with the brain to help our habits, our patterns, our emotional responses. So I would agree with you. I think it feels like, oh, we just added a new tool. And no, I'm not going crazy for feeling this or continuing to do this really dysfunctional pattern that I know is not great in my life, but why do I do it? And then, you know, this just brings a whole nother understanding to human behavior, I think. Absolutely. And segueing off of what you just said, we have a different relationship to the brain. We have a different relationship to ourselves. And so we, when we understand why we're reacting the way we're reacting, why there's a negativity bias in the brain, so we are going to pay more attention to the negative than to the positive, why we have a nervous system that will rev up automatically to take care of us if there's danger or threat, why we reach out to people for help that's biologically built in um, to reach out to other people for help. So once we understand why we do what we do, we can have a much more compassionate relationship with ourselves and we shift from being so critical and negative and shaming blaming to a much more uh, much more of a sense of oh i have a choice here i can make a choice and um, one of my colleagues frankie perez says how you respond to the issue 
is the issue. So how we're responding to our emotions, how we're responding when we get frightened or get overwhelmed or go ballistic, how we respond to all of that is a key part of our resilience. So I'm trying to teach my clients, there's a, a trajectory that I like to describe. My friend Janet Friedman said, catch the moment, make a choice. And then Julia Butterfly Hill, the environmentalist, says every moment has a choice and every choice has an impact. So when clients can begin to understand that, oh, I'm noticing my experience, I'm noticing my response to my experience, I can make a choice about what I want to do about that, and my choices will make a difference. That's the empowerment that comes when we're practicing our tools of resilience. So I really am trying to encourage people that not only can they learn to be resilient, they can learn that they are a learner. They can learn these tools that will change their life for the better. And to have that sense of relationship to themselves, oh, I am someone who can learn, I am someone who can be resilient. I think that's one of the most powerful effects of all, to have people see themselves as resilient. Yeah, I would agree. And a really good reminder um, that I read in your book, too, and I'd like you to talk about this, was um, I think it might have been in the reconditioning process about how important it is for the environment in order for the person to be able to make these changes in the brain and to, I guess, build upon more resilience is that there has to be safety. Mm hmm. So can you talk a little bit about um, maybe people who have grown up in an unsafe environment or have uh, have had very traumatic childhoods and um, maybe going through an experience that doesn't even have to be in childhood, but why it's important to have that element of safety in order for the brain to be able to begin to change? Right. So we're talking about the brain having a neuroception of safety, and that's Stephen Porges' term, that the brain itself can sense when it feels safe or when the environment is safe. And that's the first step of that is regulating our nervous system. So we learn how to calm down from the revving up of the sympathetic nervous system and how to reactivate if we shut down in too much of the parasympathetic nervous system so that we're in what's called the range of resilience. And there are many, many terms for that in trauma therapy. It's called the window of tolerance. But we're in a, a state of physiological equilibrium. And when we feel that physiological safety, and there are many tools in the book to help people recover that. But when we feel that physiological safety, then the higher brain comes back online. And then we're able to learn and choose and change and grow and develop these new patterns. So there are many, many exercises in the book, both in somatic intelligence using the body-based tools, breath, touch, movement, visualization to help create that sense of safety. But also one of the primary ways we do feel safe is by being around other people who are safe. And other people can regulate our nervous system and help us help remind us that we can be safe. So that's part of the devastating impact of trauma in childhood, which you just alluded to, that if a child doesn't feel safe in their family or in their physical environment, then the brain doesn't actually develop these capacities 
very well, to regulate the nervous system, to manage emotions, to trust other people, to reach out for help. And so part of the healing of the trauma from childhood is actually helping the brain recover its developmental path and develop those capacities again to do all that regulating. Yes, thank you. And maybe we can even talk about the four other um, things that people can do to strengthen their resilience. I kind of uh, jumped to number two, which was safety. But I also really enjoyed reading uh, the first step in that where it's little often works best. And you describe how instead of let's use the gym, for example, or meditating, instead of trying to start a meditation practice, and you know, you're going to sit down, you're going to meditate for an hour every day, you actually say that what's better for the brain and changing these habit patterns is smaller doses at a time, but more and repeating them more. So maybe 10 minutes every single day instead of an hour. So can you explain that as well? Mm -hmm. So the brain actually learns best from small experiences repeated many times. That's how the brain, in a sense, is building its own muscles, just as we would build muscles in the gym little and often. And so when we have the opportunity to practice a small practice, but many, many times, it's much easier for the brain to develop the strength for the brain to strengthen the connections and the communication among the neurons, just like we're building muscles by doing reps at the gym little and often. So it's an analogy that we don't always get the chance to do that. Sometimes something big, traumatic, overwhelming happens all at once, and it's, it's hard immediately to chunk it down. But nonetheless, even when we're, covering, when we're recovering from big troubles and big traumas and big tragedies, to be able to chunk it down, working with one small piece of it at a time so that the brain isn't overwhelmed, it can recover that sense of safety again, even for a few moments, and do that little piece of work that will help move through the trauma over time. So yeah, it's an important principle. Yeah. And um, another one that you talk about too is we, and everybody is hearing this now, right? Positive emotions, positive thoughts. Why is it important to say these affirmations, to speak kindly to ourselves? But what about how, how do our positive emotions begin to shift our brain function? Mm -hmm. So I'm uh, for temporarily, I'm going to separate out emotions from thoughts because they work differently in the okay. brain. And when we're cultivating positive emotions, and there are many that have been studied, gratitude, compassion, kindness, joy, awe, delight, serenity. I mean, there are many that have behavioral scientists have been researching. When we come into a sense of a positive emotion, and gratitude is one of the easiest ones for people to start with, it actually antidotes the negativity bias of the brain. It shifts the functioning of the brain out of reactivity, negativity, contraction into a more open space where the brain can be more receptive, more open, more optimistic. And one of the direct measurable cause and effect outcomes of doing those practices is resilience. So that's very, very encouraging to realize that we cultivate these positive emotional experiences, not just to feel better, though often we do, but to do better. We'll be able to make wiser choices in our behaviors when we've created that spaciousness in the brain to be not so frightened, not so negative, and more open to possibilities, to, more, to be more open to choices. 
Excellent. And um, the next one that I, I, it made me think of a story. I was teaching a woman's wellness um, course and I had a co-teacher with me and she was in her master's degree program learning a lot about the principles of positive psychology. Mm-hmm. There was a book that she was reading, and it reminded me of your fourth step here in strengthening resilience um, with resonant relationships and how that teaches us new strategies. And you began that paragraph by talking about when a person is truly seen or understood, accepted and validated by another person, that that really has a huge impact. And I remember um, the person that was co-teaching with me, she gave the woman an exercise of writing a, I guess you could say a gratitude or appreciation letter to think about a person in your life that really impacted you in some way. And there was a Mm -hmm. study, there was a study done on this. I can't think of um, who it was off the top of my head, but Mm -hmm. what they had done was they, they had studied people writing these gratitude letters and actually meeting face to face with their individual that impacted them and read them the letter. Mm -hmm. And it showed that that had like a longitudinal effect on that person from that day forward. And that, that increased self-esteem and increased self-worth and just hearing that validation and being accepted, knowing that they had an impact, had a great change in those people's lives. Mm -hmm. So when I was reading that part of your book there, it made me think of that story mm-hmm. that I had heard last year. So can you talk a little bit about how this kind of appreciation and really accepting people and letting them know that why that's so important? Mm-hmm. So this sounds like the study that was done by Martin Seligman. Yes, um, Seligman, that's and, it. That's it. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. And and he also said one of the quotes I use from him in my workshops a lot is that doing a kindness has produced the single most reliable momentary increase in well-being any exercise we have tested. So the positive emotions have a lot to do with our sense of well-being. Now, when we come with people, these positive pro-social emotions like gratitude or kindness or compassion, I also quote my mentor, Diana Fosha, who developed um, Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, says the roots of resilience, the roots of resilience are to be found in the felt sense of being held in the mind and self-possessed other. Now, the reason for that is not just positive psychology. It is attachment theory. The attachment theorists know that our experiences in our earliest relationships, when we feel and understood and validated, kindles the maturation of the brain so that all of these capacities develop in the brain. And so when that goes awry, as it does in trauma or less than secure attachment, then we have to be able to learn how to recover those capacities as an adult. And that may, if we didn't have that first time around, we might be wary, we might be mistrustful of other people or of ourselves around other people. And so that's why there are a lot of skills in both books of improving connection, communication, relationships with other people because other people are the best refuges and the best resources we have for being resilient. That's our so I'm wanting to help people recover other people as a resource for their resilience as well. Yeah. And then the last step that you have there too um, is talking about conscious reflection. Mm-hmm. So I do talk quite a bit about mindfulness practice because mindfulness, I love what Guy Armstrong 
experiencing while you're experiencing it. So being very present in the moment, engaged with your experience. Now, sometimes the experience that we're noticing and engaged with can be difficult to hold. And so that's where I think self-compassion is also a very important part of this conscious reflection. We're aware of what's happening. We're aware of how we're reacting toward ourselves as the experiencer of what we're experiencing. That helps open up the, the space in the brain again to cope. But we need conscious reflection. We need to be aware and we need to make conscious choices <clears throat> if we're going to do this rewiring way. And I, I sometimes, I'm really close to saying we have a responsibility <laughs> to learn how to do this so that we're not in suffering and we don't cause suffering to other people. So I simply applied the practices of mindfulness, paying attention to and emotions and dynamics in relationships and our thoughts and our belief systems so we can see what our options be. And one of the ones that I love to teach people, um, I include this in the conscious reflection tools, is change every should do a could. Because our language Language has a powerful, language is a filter for how we perceive and respond to our experience. So we're auditing on ourselves, you know, we have expectations, a demand for performance, a demand for perfection. And if we change the word to I could, it opens up the sense of possibility. It just opens up our options. And that's one tool that has a very powerful effect on how we experience our world, ourselves, and how we respond to all of that. So there are many tools of applying, noticing, and choosing to be our brains and change our experience. Wonderful. And I'd like to talk about one of the exercises that I know you enjoy talking about as well, which is the hand on the heart mm -hmm. exercise. And what it actually reminded me of is uh, heart math a little bit and how yeah. uh, a lot of people are being dropped or taught to drop into the heart, but um, having coherence, like dropping into coherence and really connecting with the heart. And when I read this, I was like, oh, that sounds like she's, you know, trying to bring people into coherence. So I that's, was hoping. That's right. Yeah, you can uh, maybe talk a little bit about why the hand on the heart does work so well. And I am sure that many of our listeners know that, you know, there is an electromagnetic field around the heart. It resonates. This is one of the tools that we use to be able to pick up vibes and to be able to feel our surroundings. It's innate within us. So I'd like you to um, maybe explain why it works, how it works, and uh, explain how people can actually use this technique. Okay, so I can explain it as I kind of go through the steps of the technique. And it's true, this is one of the first exercises that I teach clients and workshop participants because it's so simple and it's so powerful. It can calm down a panic attack in less than a minute. So it's simply placing your own hand on your heart center so that you can feel the warm touch of your hand on your heart. And then breathing more slowly, deeply, gently into the heart. That activates the parasympathetic branch in a positive way. And so we're actually activating the calming branch of our nervous system. And the body begins to relax. And then by breathing in a sense of ease or goodness or safety or peace, that's, that is from heart math. And that's when you're helping restore the coherent heart rate variability, which allows the heart to respond to stress more flexibly. Then you take a moment to remember a moment, just one moment, when you felt safe and loved and cherished with another human being. So this is going back to the safety, the neuroception of safety in the brain. But when you remember this moment, not the whole relationship, but want and loved and cherished, and you actually let the felt sense of that 
wash through the body, what you're doing is the release of oxytocin, which is the brain's hormone of safe bonding and belonging. And the oxytocin is the brain's direct and immediate antidote to the stress hormone cortisol. So as soon as the oxytocin is flowing in the body brain, because it's a hormone that crosses the blood-brain barrier, so it flows through the body. And as soon as we feel that, heart rate goes down, the blood pressure goes down, and we can come back into that physiological sense of safety. Now, we're doing that partly by calling on memories of experiences with people where we have felt safe with a safe other. So we're using both the body and our relational capacities as well. I suggest people practice that five times a day, five days a week, so that the uh, brain begins to develop that pathway as an automatic response. You don't even have to think about it anymore. Um, but it's strong enough, that tool is strong enough to even preempt the stress response from happening in the first place. So people can notice that they might go into a startle and then just come right back into their calm. So, yes, I do love teaching that tool because it's so effective. Yeah. And it's, I mean, the nice thing too, you know, in this day and age, we like things that are quick, you know, quick, easy. <laughs> you could really do it anywhere in public, you know, if it doesn't look all that odd to be able to place mm -hmm. your hand on your chest, you know, mm -hmm. we also intuitively do it. Sometimes when you think about a beautiful story or something that somebody just said, we might be like, oh my gosh. And we naturally go to hold our heart because we're filled That's with right that feeling, you know, of just, ah, oh, that ease and that safety. And, um, and yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great tool, but your book also includes 130 exercises for people to do. <laughs> I mean, there's right. a ton, when I say there's a ton in here, there's a ton people, there's 130. So if you don't like one, then you have 129 to choose from. Um, right. but what would you say is another exercise in the book that you find is pretty quick, easy to use, and easy for people to grasp why it works. Um, another one that's easy and can grasp why it works. I'll do this in my groups. So when two people get together <laughs> and they are in physical proximity and they're making eye contact and they share some positive emotion, they share a kind of mutual care and concern. So I will often have people simply remember a moment of kindness that they received from another human being and share that story and listen to the other person's story and reflect on what it was like to tell their story, hear the other person's story. What happens is we're using those we're using the mirror neurons where you can see what's happening with the other person and how they're feeling. But we're also using that sharing of positive emotions to create what I call resonance, but Barbara Fredrickson in her book, Love 2.0, calls love. And that's because when we have this physical proximity, eye contact, she says that the brain waves of the two people begin to sync up. And the neurochemistry of the people begins to think up when this, and so people sense a kind of resonance between themselves and the other person. And you can do an exercise like that with a partner, remembering moments of kindness, remembering moments of gratitude, remembering moments of awe, actually awe, you know, the sense of being part of something larger and magnificent, like being out in nature, seeing a sunset, sharing those moments of awe is actually not a luxury. It actually helps us revise our sense of ourselves and our place in the world in a way that can um, help promote our resilience. So sharing emotional moments in a safe way with other people is fairly easy to do. And, and the, the mood, the openness, pretty lifts and we can be more optimistic.
And, you know, I've heard the concept about um, entrainment when you're talking about how the brain waves sync up. I've heard of how like heartbeats can sync up. And, mm -hmm. you know, when we do run meditation classes with a group, there's just an energy where it does feel like everyone starts to connect. Um, I know um, one of the musicians uh, who is a therapeutic musician explains that to the group about how like you could have 100 clocks in a room, you set the clocks and eventually they're all beating at the same time and there's a resonance. Um, and an entrainment that happens. So I don't think I was really aware that that can also happen with the brain waves. I think I've always just incorporated it more to like the energy of the body and the heart, but it makes total sense that the brain waves would as well for mm -hmm. in relationship right. with someone. Yeah. Right. So you're talking about emotional contagion and we often think of that as picking up someone else's anger or picking up someone else's sadness if we're around people who are feeling very powerful emotions. But emotional contagion can work in a positive way. If we are calm, or if we are in joy, if we are in gratitude, and we're around someone who is struggling, our positive emotion can entrain their brain and actually help shift their emotional experience as well. And, it's, and we probably do that all the time as parents, as partners, as therapists or teachers or counselors. But it's important to know that it has real validity in how the brain works. Exactly. And I'd like to also give you an opportunity to maybe let people know why does your book really um, stand out amongst the rest? Because, you know, people could say, oh, another book on resilience. There's that funny word again. Uh, you know, but I mean, this book is really, really good. It's great. <laughs> There's practical tools. And I wouldn't want anybody to just, you know, bypass it just because it has the word resilience on it. Like, oh, another book. But I mean, when you say on the cover, powerful practices, I mean, to me, that's one of the keys of this book of why people mm -hmm. really need to grab it. But what do you think also sets your research and the work that you've done um, you know, aside from some other things that are out there nowadays. So the rest of the subtitle, I think, is also part of what sets this book apart, which is bouncing back from disappointment, difficulty, and even disaster. In other words, I try to help people move from the very slightest wobbles we lose our car keys, but then we find them two minutes later, to a serious struggle or sorrow, like losing a job or losing a relationship or losing your health, to the trauma of too much, too many difficult things happening over all at once and we get overwhelmed. So the exercises in the book are organized by what we've already talked about, the new conditioning, the reconditioning, the deconditioning. It's organized by the five intelligences, which we've been referring to, the somatic body-based intelligence, the emotional intelligence, the relational intelligence within ourselves, how we relate to ourselves, the relational intelligence with others so that people can be resources for our resilience, and then the reflective intelligence, the conscious reflection. But then it's also organized by barely a wobble. Here's a serious struggle. Here's the trauma of too much. So that people can kind of find their own level in the book of what they're coping with at the time and start using exercises that could be immediately helpful. So I think what part of what makes it difference is trying to cover that whole range of human experience. Yeah. And you're a busy lady too. I mean, you are teaching this stuff all around the world. That's true. <laughs> um, I mean, you're busy for 2019. I mean, you have quite a lineup. You're really going all over. And I have to say that, um, 
the, your title for Austria, shit happens, shift happens, right? You have that in your book too. <laughs> and, um, I thought maybe I'd give you a chance to talk about what, what you mean by that as well okay. in the book, but I, it's just a, it's a catchy title and it's great. It gets people's attention to say, Whoa, what is she teaching in Austria? What's that? Right. So, <laughs> so, so that title came out of an experience that I actually had that sort of set me in the direction of what works to recover our resilience. And that is, and I tell the story in Bouncing Back, that um, I was walking to my office one day. I can do that on automatic pilot. I was worried about something, so I wasn't paying any attention to where I was going. And I blithely walked into a sidewalk of freshly laid wet cement up to my ankles. So shit happens. <laughs> But I noticed that, oh, I'm going into my cranky catastrophic, oh, no, you stupid klutz, look what you did. You're going to be late for clients. You're going to have to reschedule. You're going to lose clients. You're going to lose your business. You're going to lose your practice. I mean, catastrophic thinking in three seconds. And I realized, oh, I'm tired of kind of beating myself up for just making a mistake. I'm not the only person on the planet that made a mistake today because they weren't paying attention. And this is probably not even the only mistake I'm going to make today. So I think I need to shift. <laughs> I need to shift my attitude here and come about this in a different way. So I pulled my feet out of my shoes and my shoes out of the sidewalk. And it really happened this way. There was an apartment building with an outdoor water faucet so I could begin to wash off my shoes. And I realized this was the big shift. Well, I'm shifting my attitude. This is getting better. If I can shift my attitude in this moment, I can shift my attitude in any moment. And that was the a big shift. That's how I've come to b believe that resilience is really a foundational practice, like our mindfulness helps us hold anything that happens. And our compassion practice allows us to hold anything that happens. Our resilience practice allows us to hold anything that happens because we can shift our attitude in any given moment. That's the big shift. Yes. And I think that that's, you know, important for people to hear because we're not, mm -hmm. we're not really bound by this brain, right? We're not, we can break through what's been torturing us. It's, you know, it doesn't always have to be the same. There is hope. There's light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'd like you to also let our listeners know all the work that you are doing, how they can get a hold of you. I mean, your training page in itself is awesome. I mean, you have clinical trainings, you have workshops, psychotherapy, resilience coaching. And like I said, you're traveling, you know, across the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, you're a busy woman in 2019. So um, how can people either work with you, find you if they want to come to your workshops? Can you let them know? Okay, so there are a lot of resources on my website, which is lindagraham-mft.net. And on the website are audio recordings of many of the exercises from the book, um, interviews, video interviews with other experts on resilience, the archives of all the weekly resources for recovering resilience that I post. So there's a lot of resources, and it's all free and easily downloadable. And yes, there's information there about the workshops I offer, the resilience coaching that I offer, how to buy the book itself. So I would encourage people to go to the website because there's a lot there that might be helpful. It's intended to be helpful and to be practical. 
Well, thank you so much, Linda, for being a guest on the Path Eleven podcast. I really enjoyed this book. Um, I know that I'm going to be using some of the exercises that you have in here, and I really appreciated the neuroscience that you put in. So thanks again for all that you're doing. Thank you, April. You know, I really enjoyed the conversation and just thinking these things through in a new way. So very enjoyable for me, too. If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!